The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After his baptism, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit for 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing in those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give his angels charge of you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The Gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, as I have told you an annoyingly amount of times, annoyingly, an annoying amount of times, uh, I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids. But come on, I've been reading like Bob the Builder books for so long. It's nice to have something that keeps my attention. Toward the end, in the last battle, as... C.S. Lewis has so masterfully written for us this sort of final judgment scene and the remaking of Narnia is taking place. Aslan has created a doorway through which all Narnian creatures can pass, and they either look upon him with fear and love or with fear and hate. And just before that, our heroes and a set of dwarves had been stuck in this barn where a a demon was going to tear them apart, but Aslan comes and saves them just in time, and As they head into what is essentially the new heavens and the new earth, the dwarves will not get on board with the fact that they have been set free. They refuse to actually see what is around them, to the point that Lucy even picks a flower to put under one of the dwarves' nose that they could smell the beauty of their surroundings. And he says, none of that, how dare you? What do you mean by shoving a lot of filthy stable litter in my face? Lucy goes rushing to Aslan to see if he can help set the doors straight, and Aslan replies, I will show you both what I can and cannot do. And he sets about trying to convince the dwarves that they are in paradise, but they misconstrue everything he tells them. We haven't let anyone take us in, they say. The dwarves are for the dwarves. Aslan says to Lucy, you see, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their minds, yet they are that prison. They are so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Before we continue with the story of Christ being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, I want to just say to you right up front, I get that as modern people it is difficult to believe that a man was driven into the wilderness for 40 days and saw 
the devil, and that the devil somehow has the ability to transport him to see all the kingdoms at once, and then transport him to Jerusalem in an instant. I, I get it. I know that it feels like Luke has jumped the shark. But I beg you, do not choose cunning over belief. Do not be hemmed in by what your senses and our culture tells us is possible. So what's happening in this story of Christ's temptation? In many ways, this story marks for us the beginning of the culmination of human history. Satan, the accuser, the devil, is recorded as being personally present to tempt three times in Scripture. Adam and Eve, Job, and Jesus. Which should signal for us that this is an old story reaching far back into the hazy collective memory of humanity. And Luke is trying to show us where Jesus fits within this storyline. That's where the 40-day fast in the wilderness fits in as well. Noah was in a wilderness of floodwaters for 40 days. Israel was in the wilderness outside the promised land for 40 years. For 40 days, the prophet Ezekiel lay down on his right side, and God placed on him the punishment of Judah. He was bound with rope so that he mirrored the siege of Jerusalem. Moses stayed on the mountain receiving God's law for 40 days and didn't take food or water. Elijah, fleeing for his life, travels through the wilderness for 40 days until he comes to the mountain of God. Luke is trying to signal to us that in this story of Jesus doing battle with Satan in the wilderness, the entire storyline of human history gets reversed. Before the beginning, the triune God existed in perfect love and service to one another. They sang glory to one another, constantly showering down love upon the other. And in the overflow of that love, they created all that is, visible and invisible. And it was all good and beautiful, and mankind was the jewel of the crown of their creative acts. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father speaks. The Son is the creative word, and the Spirit hovers and then brings out life into the dust of the man. And it's paradise. But of course, as we know, Adam and Eve, the partner made specifically for him, encounter the devil, one who had succumbed to pride himself and now was going after God's image, the crown jewel of creation, plotting their downfall. And he tempts them, we're told, with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The woman sees that the fruit was beautiful, a delight to the eyes, good for food, and could make her wise like God. And so she and Adam with her forsake their sonship, their beautiful reliance upon God, because they forsake trust and obedience to God and instead reach out to take what they wanted. Theologians have actually argued back and forth about this for some time, but it's been suggested that God actually intended to give them that fruit in his own time, that their sin was that they refused his timeline and took matters into their own hands rather than trusting what he would set aside for them as a perfect and good gift. Cut to the exodus. Humankind has been a disaster. The second generation after Adam and Eve committed fratricide, subsequent generations were so violent and awful, we're told their hearts were set on violence and evil continually. 
And that's where Noah comes in. And even after that reset of the entire earth being baptized, things still go off the rails. The chosen family, the great-grandsons of Abraham, are so filled with jealousy and evil that they plan on killing one of their own brothers, but instead find money too alluring and so sell him into slavery instead, which of course turns out to be the divine plan that saves their lives when they needed food and their slave brother had been placed as second-in-command in Egypt. Of course, if you follow that story, you know that then the whole family becomes slaves of Egypt, and for 400 years they suffer at the hands of their masters until God raises up Moses, the stuttering murderer, to lead them out to the land that he had promised to Abraham. And it's miraculous, and they have no faith. Time and again, they rely on their senses like the dwarves, needing a shiny golden calf that they can wrap their minds around, rather than the smoldering, flashing, lightning, frightening, untamable presence of God on the mountain. And they complain, and they reject him, and they reject him, and they reject him again and again. And that's where Ezekiel comes in centuries later doing bizarre prophetic cosplay of Israel's bondage after she has been removed from the land due to continued failure to keep God's covenant. And for all of the cleansing of the 40-day floodwaters, for all of the fasting of Moses and Elijah, for the 40-day recapitulation of Ezekiel being bound to his bed, unable to roll over, for all the wanderings of Israel, there has been no reversal of human fortune. Adam had paradise but refused the trusting obedience of sonship and so was cast out into the wilderness of the world. Israel had the promised land, but refused the trusting obedience of sonship, and so was vomited out of the land into the wilderness of foreign political power. And now, if we were following Luke's gospel from the beginning, he has already told us that Jesus has come as the Son. The Son is what's been waited for, the Son of God, the Son that all other sonship points to. And he's here, we've been told, for the rising and falling of many in Israel to reveal the thoughts of many hearts. And his own mother will be pierced through the soul. And here he is, getting ready to do this battle. This is the moment. If I were a film director, this is where we would pan way back the helicopter camera would be coming over and you would see both armies laid out in all of their vast array for miles, eerily silent as the entire world is almost pausing, almost holding its breath to see if good will finally triumph or if evil will remain the world's Lord. The tempter is there. Jesus has not met him by accident. He has been driven out into the desert by the Spirit. For Jesus is the Spirit-filled one. And again, the devil tempts him with the same temptations that have been tripping up humanity since day one. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Appetite, boasting, ambition. These are the summary moral failures of humanity. Our appetites have led us to erode our own soil and pollute our own water supplies, to buy and sell the bodies of men, women, and children. Our boasting and ambition have led us to cheat on our tax return, lie to our customers or competitors, and forsake our families to work more. They have led us to nearly constant war. 
We're in a bad way, aren't we? Everything is riding on this interaction between Jesus and the devil. And what is the first thing that the devil does? He tries to plant doubt. If, what a sneering word, if you are the Son of God, make bread for yourself out of these stones. The devil pulled the same trick with Israel in the wilderness, and that's where Jesus quotes from. Man does not live by bread alone. The end of that quote is, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Notice, though, that the devil is redefining sonship. He's trying to play on Jesus' appetite, his immense hunger, and Jesus' self-identity as the Son of God. Satan is saying, if you're the Son of God, then you should take power into your own hands and do what you want instead of relying on your Father. But Jesus understands that sonship is obedience. It is unceasing obedience, reliance, and trust. And so there's the guy way at the edge of the armies gathered together. He's got the scoreboard placards. Jesus won, Satan zero. So in a vision, the devil takes him to see all the kingdoms of the earth, and he tells Jesus that he has been given authority over all of these kingdoms, and that he'll give Jesus that authority and glory if Jesus will just worship him. And Jesus again quotes from the time of the wanderings of Israel, you shall worship Yahweh alone, serve him alone. He alone is God. There are a couple of things to notice about this one. First of all, the devil is playing on Jesus' messianic ambition. But notice that Luke does something very key here. If you've been following Luke's gospel all the way along, you would recognize that Luke has been describing the background to Jesus' advent in the world in terms of the Roman Empire, as if that were the final political power. But now he pulls back the curtain to show us that behind all worldly power, not just the Roman Empire, but every empire that would stand and fall subsequently, behind all of that stands the devil who has been granted authority for a time. Take that with you when you get into fights with your friends and neighbors and family about American politics. The devil has been granted authority for a time. But also notice, the devil is proposing to displace God the Father as Jesus' benefactor. In Psalm 2, which is this amazing messianic psalm, it's all about the kings and nations plotting and striving and rising and falling, but Yahweh laughs and holds them in derision because he has a king who will sit on the throne forever, and he tells him, you are my son, I am your father, ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Again, Satan is trying to reorient sonship away from trusting obedience. But Christ has indeed been given all things as an inheritance. As Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, Christ wasn't just raised out of death. He was raised far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And the Father has put all things under Christ's feet and has made him to be head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Just like Satan got Adam and Eve to reach out and take what they perceived as their birthright on their own, in their own timing, so he tries to get Jesus to reach out and take what's coming to him, rather than wait in trusting obedience upon his father. Verse 
But Jesus, the Spirit-filled Son, refuses to reach out and take. Jesus, too. Satan, zero. So they head to Jerusalem. Satan goes back to the doubt maker number one. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And now he's getting wily. He's noticed, as we have, that Jesus has defeated him every time by quoting Scripture. So the devil gets into the game. This also should be instructive for us. Satan himself can quote Scripture like nobody's business. That does not mean that he is wise. He is utterly lacking in wisdom, and you can see it if you just go back and look at the psalm we read this morning. Because he quotes from that psalm, and that psalm is all about dwelling in trusting obedience to God. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That's how the psalm begins. That's the person to whom the promise goes out that they will not strike their foot against a stone. Oops, Satan. You forgot to read in context. And what Jesus understands is that often trusting obedience actually leads through suffering, but ends in resurrection. And so he quotes again from Israel's time in the desert. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus 3, Satan 0, game over. It's not that Satan doesn't come back around and try his best. He does to the point of having Jesus killed, which he foolishly thinks is his own doing and his own victory. But God uses it as a parade of his own victory to the devil's eternal shame. But in this moment, out here in the desert, humanity's fortunes start to be reversed because finally there is a son who in reliance upon the Holy Spirit trusts and obeys his father. And so here we are. Those of you that are baptized, we are called to follow Christ from the waters of his baptism out into the wilderness, our season of Lent, our 40 days. What does this mean for us? I think the, the first step is that when we see our failure, our capitulation to the temptations of the devil, and we see what they cost the true son who resists entrusting obedience to the point of shedding his own blood. When we see that it costs him his very life in the most painful, humiliating way possible, we should repent. We should be filled with sorrow and mourning for how flippantly we grab and take and consume and so declare ourselves as fit to do whatever we want. As somehow more worthy than the very Son of God who did not do that. This is the beginning of repentance. But repentance means to turn, and feeling all of the sorrowful feelings in the world won't make a difference if we don't turn to the one who stood fast, who remained rooted in trust of his Father, to turn, him, turn to him and trust him, to see his face. Do you know why that's so difficult? It's because from the very beginning, 
As soon as Satan put that, that thought in Eve's mind, from that moment on, we have all been questioning in our hearts, is he good? Or is, as soon as I turn around and face him, is he going to strike me dead? And so we, we, we wait. We use all of our energy to keep from staring our own sin in the face and what our sin does. And that's where Satan wants us. But if we would turn, we would know that he is good. We would see the goodness in his face and we would realize that he is everything we have ever wanted, even when we didn't know it. Not only that, but through faith and baptism, we are in him, which means that all of that devil-busting obedience that he displayed in the desert is now ours. So don't choose cunning instead of belief. And don't be afraid. You might be driven out into the wilderness. You might see real evil rising up, trying to be at war within you. But do not be afraid because you are in Christ and he has overcome the devil. I invite you now as we enter a time of silent reflection to close your eyes and hear the words of that psalm again as God's words to you in Christ. He says, when you call to me, I will answer you. I will be with you in trouble. I will rescue you and honor you. With long life, I will satisfy you and show you my salvation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.